All your base are belong to us. Hello. Welcome to Fake Geek Girls, a podcast looking at nerdy pop culture from both a fan and critical perspective, encouraging the things we love to do better. I'm Missy. I'm a writer. And Mary before this roasted people <laughs> who, are, who are attracted to James Bond. And I will say I'm not attracted to James Bond, but there were times. They were dark times. There were times. There were times in the Brazilian era when I was like, I don't know, maybe he could get it. I mean, okay. Not all the time. No, not many. Sometimes. Sometimes. Uh. I'm Mary, I'm a marketer, and Michelle Yeoh for life. Truly. We are now deep into the 90s deep. here with Irish actor Pierce Brosnan taking over for Timothy Dalton. <laughs> Didn't fucking know he's Irish. He is Irish after even more weird legal issues. Huh. I, I'm not getting into it. I can't, I can't, I can't. It's not what we're here for. I can't constantly be talking about Bond's legal issues, but they are everywhere. They're all the time happening. How many, how many, like, if if Bond were real, how many lawsuits would he have for um, sexual assault? They have to fire him. Like, please, God, tell me that they would fire James Bond. They probably wouldn't, but... Because no one knows who he is. He's a Everyone spy. Everyone knows who he is. <laughs> Missy, he's a Hello spy. Me, James Bond. The Salter. <laughs> I think you said the Salter? I was like, what does that mean? He loves salt. <laughs> um, interestingly, we're jumping right in here today. Yeah, Interestingly. Uh, I almost called him James Brosnan. I really forgot his name for a moment. Uh, Pierce Brosnan was actually the lead in Remington Steel, which was a spy show. Um, and he was actually initialed the Bond role before Timothy Dalton, but he couldn't get out of the TV contract. Interesting. So Dalton ended up playing, uh, playing Bond when it was intended to be Brosnan. Um, now I looked into like, how do people, how do people receive Brosnan? And generally speaking, there wasn't a lot, which probably tells me that people thought he was okay, but not great, which I think is fair. He's, he's an okay actor. I think he is handsome. And I think that is his main, the main trait that he brought to these, to these movies. He's, he's handsome in like a, in a handsome way. You know what I mean? I think for me, he just kind of felt like all the best and mediocre things put into one. I, yeah, I agree. I think he's my favorite Bond so far. I would say he's, he's my favorite Bond, except for all the Bonds in Casino Royale. That is fair. Um, because I, but I just think that he is, they took, they plucked everything that has worked and then threw in a little bit of, boring and then yeah. they made him i think he's he's not necessarily the best bond um he's not the best actor uh but he is likable in a way that the other bonds have not been like yeah no 100 percent, 100 percent agree <laughs> i like i like james bond i like i mean i like pierce brosnan and i like Bo- brosnan's bond to the point where like i don't want to punch him in the face no i so totally agree and when he was charming i was like okay i could see how how this could be like like charm the pants off of you kind of thing yeah you know? he not- seemed much more relatable yeah which is weird because he's not he's not but he but he seems more uh like a person i wonder if it's just like the time of like okay the 80s where the 80s were very much like over the top and like before that there was an attainable like an unattainable lifestyle right where i think maybe we're going into a time where it's still unattainable but you want to feel it like it's attainable so you need to be more charismatic you need to be more relatable there was definitely an emphasis on in the 90s on making him more human which we'll we'll get into um but i think that i think that specifically um brosnan is just kind of a likable guy 
because like the what else has he been in uh mama mia oh that's right which is right which is the only other thing i he's been in other stuff but as far as i know pierce brosnan is james bond and mama mia i told i told bob that um that he's in mama mia because that was literally the only thing he's like he is not i'm like he He is is in mama he and he does a great fucking job and he my husband was just like oh that's like the fact that he can play james bond and also star in mama mia is exactly what i enjoyed about brosnan's run as bond yeah i agree um there's like a there's a lack of seriousness but not in a smug way like there was with Moore, where Moore was extremely smug um i don't get that from from brosnan's bond um and he's charming but not in a creepy way mm-hmm. um and he's handsome but not in he's not like like he's not like super super hot but he is handsome yeah um, like you, your mom probably thinks he's hot yeah for sure like not your mom but probably your mom but like moms in general <laughs> yeah he's, are... he, he does have that mom charm yeah. face you know what i mean mm-hmm. um so let's talk a little bit about the cultural context. Now that we're in the 90s, uh, we're kind of like, quote unquote, beyond the Cold War, uh, if we can ever really be said to be beyond the Cold War, because as much as it was like not a like a lot of direct fighting, it sure was influential. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can see this pretty clearly in the opening titles to Goldeneye, which have, you know, the the normal Bond girls like smashing symbols of communism, toppling statues of Lenin. Uh, it was good. I liked it. Yeah. Destroying the hammer and sickle and, and so on. Um, according to our favorite text, License to Thrill, a cultural <laughs> history of the James Bond films by James Chapman, which I will quote 8,000 times throughout this episode. Um, the com- I hope that the person who created this gets to hear this. Yeah. Shout out to James Chapman. Uh, <laughs> according our new favorite philosopher, according to up there with Young, <laughs> Toulouse, <laughs> Chapman. Uh, the context for Tomorrow Never Dies is the Falklands War, uh, which involved the sinking of the British ship Devonshire, uh, representing a similar blow. Oh, sorry, with the sinking of the ship Bre- Devonshire in um, Tomorrow Never Dies, uh, mm. representing a similar blow to national pride as that of the ship's loss in the Falklands War, which was a 10-week undeclared war between Argentina and the UK over um, a couple of different islands, the Falklands and then also South Georgia. Uh, the UK said that they had the rights to those islands and Argentina was like, you fucking don't. Um, so Argentina invaded, in, you know, quote unquote, invaded them because they said that they had sovereignty. Oh, and the UK responded by sending a naval force. This happened in the Crown. Oh, oh, okay. I'm so, pretty sure this happened in the Crown. Yeah, you're probably right. Yeah, it was like a bunch of Argentina. I think they were a bunch of like workers. Mm, okay, so they. I could be totally wrong. The Ar- <laughs> I haven't seen the Crown, so I can't. I can't attest to this, but uh, Argentina went into the Falklands and, and South Georgia to establish their rule. And the UK responded by sending their naval force and almost a thousand people died or maybe 10,000 people. I wrote a thousand, but I could be wrong. In a thousand. There is a thousand after it. Uh, yeah. Um, so a, a good number of people died. And so that was kind of, uh, according to Chapman, some of the influence on this. Uh, 
from that same book, License to Thrill, Chapman writes, In the imaginary world of the Bond film, however, Britain sets out to take on not a tin pot South American di- dictatorship, but the military might of Red China. We're sending the fleet to China, Money Penny tells Bond, in a gloriously anachronistic assertion of Britain's maritime power. Moreover, the film also recalls the jingoistic extremes of the British tabloid press during the Falklands War. The empire will strike back, screams one headline in a manner reminiscent of the sun's notorious gotcha and stick it up your junta banners of 1982. <laughs> so you have here um, th- I, the, the line that gloriously anachronistic assertion of Britain's maritime power is such a fucking dunk. First of all, <laughs> I think it's really funny. Um, I personally don't know that much about Britain's military strength, um, but I thought the line gloriously anachron- anachronistic was funny. Um, but the, the way that Carver, who's the villain of that film, the media mogul, I know it feels like we skipped right over GoldenEye, but we'll return to it. I, I tried to structure this in a way that will like naturally flow, but it does mean that we skipped GoldenEye first. Um, anyway, the, the press headline that he runs with is The Empire Will Strike Back, which is uh, hmm. gross, hmm. Um, but also reminiscent of actual headlines, as Chapman points out, with the sun saying, gotcha, and stick it up your junta. Feels very much like 9-11 res- responses. Yeah, the the like extreme patriotism and Don't put and, a boot in your ass. Yeah, jingoism of um of this era and, and like any threat to the empire. Um so China, who at this point was now the world's leading communist power following the collapse of the Soviet Union, um, they became a much bigger threat. Um, although, to be honest, uh it has been through most of the films actually um china has been more has been generally more of a threat um than russia which is which seems odd because it's always like oh it's russia oh it's not actually russia it's somebody else um i suggested before that maybe one of the reasons for the de-emphasizing of russia as like a communist power could be um because the bond filmmakers wanted a racialized enemy for visual reasons but that is my own conjecture and not something i found stated anywhere it's just kind of a hypothesis that i had i was curious so i looked it up uh about the relations between russia and the uk and so i'm going to read something from wikipedia bear with me uh relations improved considerably after i'm gonna botch these names uh mikhail gorbachev yep came to power in the Soviet Union in 1985 and launched Perestroika. Thank you. Um, They remained relatively warm after the collapse of the USSR in 91, with Russia taking over the international obligations and status status from the demise of the superpower. superpower. In October of 94, Queen Elizabeth II um, made a state visit to Russia in the first time a British monarch ever set foot on Russian soil. So, there definitely was like we're doing better with Russia. Yeah, I think that's part of it. But it's it was interesting to me that Russia was never a huge enemy in the Bond films dating all the way back to the 60s. Mm. Like there would be like hints of it, but it would usually be somebody else was actually the problem, which is so interesting because you think that they would make the easy target and instead they would emphasize China as an enemy. But I think you're right in that it's much easier to say, oh, I see enemy. Yeah, that's the th- and like I, I don't have like a source for anybody the saying source is racism that, but it does it like it's a lot there's you know, a you could write a you could write a paper at college about it yeah there's a there's i think there's a visual element to making china the enemy that doesn't exist in the same way with russia as an enemy um so while russia may be de-emphasized as an enemy 
generally speaking, in, in this the 90s era, uh, and the Cold War may be over, we still have the threat of communism now represented by China, at least in Tomorrow Never Dies. So the Cold War is like, quote unquote, over. Um, but we're still afraid of communism and, and the threat that communism we won't represents. Stop being afraid. Of no, communism. that does not go away. Um, so this we're is little babies. <laughs> uh, this is a quote from the Chinese exotic modern, modern diasporic femininity by Olivia Ku. Diasporic is a great name. Great word. It is. Um, who writes tomorrow never dies can be seen as an allegory of post cold war global relations, in particular, the rise of diaspora China in an economic, political and cultural prominence. Diaspora China appears in tomorrow never dies within a structure of espionage that is itself allegorical. What is being spied is a reversal of the geopolitics of empire. Diaspora China is not, is a new regional force in the global economy. Although some of this power must still be spied by spectators before it can be claimed. The fact that the media itself is taken on as a new enemy in the Bond series marks a turning point in its modernity. This is also made manifest by Bond's heightened self-consciousness in relation to his anachronistic, chauvinistic, yet enduring role in modern society and the self-referentiality Brosnan brought to that role. So I, so like what Ku is partially arguing here is that making China, a, what part of what made China a compelling enemy to the Bond screenwriters over Russia, for example, is the combination of communism because Bond, who is ever the individualist, right, is the gun of the British capitalist state um, and China's growing economic, cultural and political power. So you have you have communism still existing in China, but you and you have versus Bond's um, individualism and, and acting as the, you know, world police of, um, of Britain. Um, Russia may have been a fear during the cold war, uh, the dissolution, but the dissolution of the Soviet union and its comparable lack of power made it less of a threat to Britain. And I think China just makes a convenient enemy. Right. Um, and as Ku writes, it's not just China as a threat that makes them a compelling enemy, even a red herring enemy as they were in Tomorrow Never Dies, because they actually were not the enemy. Mm-hmm. The enemy was the media. Um, it's fake also, news. Fake news. It's also Britain's insecurity about their place in the world, because um, Bond's role in this new post-Cold War world is questioned, literally, in mm-hmm. GoldenEye by M. Um, because, you know, because he is the gun wielded by the British government, um, being unsure about Britain's place in the world is also uncertainty about his place in the world. Let me tell you, M, perfect. It's true. M becomes a perfect, perfect character. The the choice of Judy Dench for M was a master stroke. I don't. Yeah. I'll talk about this later. I don't think it lends the the series any more progressive values. No, but although she does be like, you're out of date. Well, I'll talk about that later. Um. We see lots of that uncertainty, not only about Britain's place in the world, but also more specifically Bond's place in the world, including M's remark about him as a dinosaur and the questioning of the past through the various items in the world is not enough when he goes into that storeroom with um, with Q and there's all of the like, that's is that in Die Another Day? I can't remember which one it's in. The one where he, the, where he like points at the jetpack and he's like, does this thing still work? We'll talk more is about that. Is that when he gets his new car? Oh, that's Die Another Day, yeah, because okay. it's the car. Everybody's very angry. That fucking invisible car is too much for me. It's just too much. It's just too much. We'll talk about that more later. 
briefly. Um, this ties more into Die Another Day as well, where North Korea is the major threat, right? We're now we're not even talking about China. We're talking about North Korea. Mm-hmm. Um, North Korea is not a communist country. Uh, from my understanding, which is admittedly very shallow, the Marxist-Leninist aspects of their government were eradicated after the fall of the Soviet Union. Mm. Um, but it does still have some aspects of socialism in their government, and it is all, it is most certainly a dictatorship, right? It's a totalitarian dictatorship. Um, but North Korea does have, uh, or sorry, those ideas of both both socialism and dictatorship are still at odds with the ideology of the Bond films um, in terms of you know individualism and uh, like an empire state and that kind of stuff. Um, North Korea also has nuclear asper- aspirations, at least in modern times, which you know makes them a worthy threat by the standards of the Bond films, right? Because you you in in the Bond films you simply cannot have a collective society you know with like socialist principles run by a dictator with nuclear power like that is like the scariest thing that the bond films can imagine um and i think this is especially true because some through some kind of technological bullshit uh (laughs) colonel moon uh manages to impersonate and arguably become a british man um if so if moon represents this dangerous ideology of you know, dictatorship and socialism changes himself, right? He literally, yeah. We went from Bond going to what Chinese? It was Japanese. Japanese to it was Korean. Yes, going to white man. Yes, it was a whole, full. It was a circle. Full of life. circle. Um, it was, and like, I'm was was he really cute before he? Oh, yes, yeah, right. Okay, I'm remembering that correctly. It, I think the other cute. guy was cuter. Okay, the guy with the diamonds in his face. That guy was hot. Yes, 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 that guy yes, was yes, hot. yes, 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 uh, yes. Why is he not Bond? Truly. So if Moon represents this dangerous ideology from Britain's perspective, it is possible to see Die Another Day as a warning about this ideology infiltrating Britain, right? Because he literally transforms into a white man. Um, They're really just sticking it to you. Yeah. Uh, another quote here from License to Thrill by James Chapman. Uh, Colonel Moon is even more contemptuous of Britain's continued pretensions to world power status. This is a quote from the film. It's pathetic that you British still believe you have the right to police the world. And there are further references to the decline of British power when Bond meets Chinese agent Mr. Chang, who says, Hong Kong's our turf now, Bond. To this extent, Die Another Day presents a more accurate representation than most other Bond films of Britain's role on the world stage at the beginning of the 21st century. I think in this case, um, you can see Britain's role in the world, but you can also see Britain's anxieties about their role in the world, mm-hmm. which is actually, which is more interesting to mm-hmm. me. It's in- it's more interesting to me to see what Britain is, is feels about their role in the world than what their role in the world actually was, right? Um, it is, it is interesting to know how other people view them, but it is also interesting to know how they view themselves through the lens of everybody else. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously we have to take what the series villains say with a grain of salt because they're always bested in the end, right? Like they never win. Um, but these movies do reveal Britain's anxieties through the words that they put in villains' mouths. Mm-hmm. So like if, you know, if Britain is anxious about their place in the world, they can have a character say, it's pathetic that you believe you have the right to police the world. And then you're like, Boom, you're dead. I'm policing. And then they win. So that's, that's what you can't like really, you can't really take it seriously, but they are playing off of the real anxieties that people would have had. Um, They are, the Bond movies are doing to Britain what Bond is trying to do in Britain in the (laughs) movies. Um, so Tomorrow Never Dies was originally supposed to be about the handover of Hong Kong from Britain to China. Uh, but that plot was scrapped for being too political. 
I mean, it is pretty political. It's pretty political, but I think the more useful way to look at it is that not is not that it's too political, it's ah, that it's too direct. Correct. Because as we have seen, these movies are always political. Even the non-canon Casino Royale was still political. Yeah. Um, maybe too timely is also appropriate since that handoff happened in 1997. So it would have been like right around that time. Yeah. Uh, these movies, year? two years, something like that. Yeah, these movies seem to want to come at politics from an angle after a little time has passed, and not be too close to what's going on. They still want to be relevant, so when they make the next one, they're right. not irrelevant. Yeah, and, and not catching up. Yeah, so they can make references to things like, you know, Hong Kong isn't yours anymore, or in Die Another, D- also in Die Another Day. There's a very, very blink and you'll miss it moment where M implies that 9/11 happened mm-hmm. while Bond was imprisoned in the North Korean prison camp. I didn't catch that. Missy had to um, point it out. But... I only caught it because I read it 85 times, so <laughs> I I blinked and I missed it. I was dancing to Madonna. You, I can't be blamed. Um, I am. Yeah. No one can judge me. Um, This is a quote from The Politics of James Bond by Jeremy Black, who writes, in a throwback to World War II, his, this is now referring to uh, Trevelyan, who is uh, played by Sean Bean in GoldenEye. We have moved to GoldenEye now. I understand the the chronology of this outline sounds weird, but there's a a reason I laid it out this way. Uh, So in GoldenEye, in a throwback to World War II, uh, Trevelyan's parents were Leon's Cossacks who had supported Hitler and whom the British had turned over for slaughter by Stalin. Turned over for slaughter by Stalin. This hearkening back to an unheroic act from a past war echoed Fleming's use of the war as a sheet anchor of values. A controversy over the alleged role of Harold Macmillan in the handing over of such people and the alleged, or sorry, the related Aldington Tolstoy libel action increased British interest in and concern with the issue in the 1980s and 1990s. The device explains why Trevelyan aims to overthrow Britain and not the far wealthier United States and affirms Bond's role as the defender of Britain. This plot device would have struck few echoes, however, outside Britain. Boy, howdy, is that true? Because I had no idea what the fuck that was a reference to. Um, so the Lands, I hope I'm saying that right. The Lands Cossacks were a group of ethnic Russians and Ukrainians who opposed the Soviet Union and communism and who fled the, the, fled the country after the victory of the Red Army. So they were opposed to communism. Communism took over and they're like, peace, I'm out. Um, some of those anti-communist Cossack leaders threw in with the Nazis um, and the Nazis were initially resistant, but eventually welcomed them uh, hmm. to join the Nazi army. And many of those Cossacks fought against the allies in World War II. So they, they supported the Axis powers and, you know, thereby became the enemy of the British. So after the war ended, um, the Lands Cossacks, which I think was specifically a group of Cossacks at a place called Lands, um, they were told in no uncertain terms by the British that they would be attending a conference um, but they were instead sent back to the Soviet Union. Uh, many resisted being sent back and died in the process. And most others were sent to gulags uh, once they returned to the Soviet Union and presumably died. Sounds like a movie. Yeah. This happened regardless of whether the Cossacks in question supported the Nazis or not. It um, though Wikipedia does state that most of the Cossacks did support the Nazis. Hmm. Um it, they didn't like interrogate each one and say, did you support the Nazis? They just sent them all back to be murdered. Interesting. Um, We're going to a conference. Yeah. I it, guess they kind of did. They straight up, they straight up lied to them. They were like, yeah, just, we're just going to a conference. No big deal. And then they sent them to their dads. That's probably like, you know, what Nazis did to Jewish people. You're just going to whatever they said. The, yeah. The gas I mean, difference of ideologies there. Yes, but, yes, yes. Um, 
So there's two points of relevancy here. Uh, one, this gives us some insight into something that Britain, through Bond, has regrets about in its past. Because Bond's response to this is not exactly our finest hour. Um, so Bond, as an agent of the British state, is saying, we fucked up on that one. Our, our, our bad. Our bad. Um, and it establishes that the threat is actually still kind of coming from Russia, if you squint, right? Because Trevelyan is the descendant of ethnic Russians. Hmm. Um, because the Cossacks were largely anti-communist or descended from anti-communists and can't speak for all of their individual beliefs, um, the threat is then specifically Russian, not just communist Russia, hmm. which I find very interesting. Um, it is, I mean, it's interesting, but not necessarily indicative of anything because by this point in the series, I think we're dealing less with like direct one-to-one representations, i.e. Trevelyan being ethnically Russian does not necessarily mean that he represents Russia in its entirely. I think these movies are a little more subtle than that at this point because like it's one of those things where like Tre- Trevelyan is kind of a sympathetic villain, right? He, he, he has reason to hate Bond. He has reason yeah. to hate Britain. Um, and he makes some good points. Like, sorry about it. Trevelyan makes some it. good points. He's got some good points. It's like the Separatists in, in Star Wars. They're not good. <laughs> but, you know, sometimes they're like, I guess, yeah, you're right. Yeah, you, you got a point there. Um, this tracks with, I think, the more sympathetic portrayals of former enemies that we see developing through the Timothy Dalton and then later into the Brosnan and Craig films where sometimes Bond's ideology is called into question. Uh, and I think that's another thing that I actually like about this era in comparison to the past eras is that like we're kind of pushing at the boundaries of like, OK, so you're an agent of the state. Are you ready to take everything that comes with that? Yeah. Um, I find that refreshing. Is it perfect? Is it progressive? No, absolutely not. These movies are still. But you take what you can get. Yeah. You know, I, I enjoyed this era overall. Um, so here's another quote from License to Throw by James Chapman. Uh, Tomorrow Never Dies presents the figure of the media mogul as the modern equivalent of the traditional Bond villain, a man who, whose control of the channels of communication allows him to manipulate the course of governments. The publicity discourse hinted that Carver was a caricature of media tycoons such as Ted Turner and Rupert Murdoch, though a more useful hmm. comparison would be to William, William Randolph Hearst. Carver even quotes the famous dictum attributed to Hearst. You provide the pictures, I'll provide the war. So... Are you ready for some Buckwild shit? I am so fucking ready. Okay, so Bruce Fierstein, who's actually a humor writer, um, he is known for writing Real Men Don't Eat Quiche, which is sort of a, like, satire of, like, men's books. Um, You know what I mean? No, Missy, explain it to me. He's anyway, he's a humorist um, and he was hired to work on Tomorrow Never Dies. Um, And he said that he based Carver most clearly on Robert Maxwell. So there's all obviously there's parallels as well to uh, William Randolph Hearst, as as Chapman points out. And of course, uh, I am going to see the Rupert Murdoch parallels all over the place. Um, But Maxwell was a media mogul in Britain and he was also a suspected spy what for Israel and maybe also Russia. There were suggestions that he was a double or even triple agent working for multiple countries. Hmm. Um, and he died under mysterious circumstances, leaving behind a lot of unpaid debts. Um, he died by apparently falling off of his yacht. Uh, he was on his yacht and he was discovered in the ocean. Um, some people say he died by suicide. Some people say he died by accident, like he just slipped and fell. And others uh, say he died by murder. Um, which is the same story as what is told of Carver in Tomorrow Never Dies. They use that, oh, he fell off his yacht and died. Yeah. That is how they explain the death of Carver in the movie. Um, Interesting. His yacht was named the Lady Ghislaine. 
uh, after his daughter, who you probably know of as the one recently charged with sex trafficking. <gasps> yeah, that Ghislaine Maxwell. What? Yeah, that one. <laughs> Bad family. Yeah, same same one. Uh, this <sighs> this clearly doesn't map like super neatly onto Carver and Tomorrow Never Dies, right? But the idea of a corrupt media mogul with ties to foreign power and immense wealth feels like a fucking Bond villain to me. Um, true. Which is funny because like a lot of people found this villain to be unbelievable, which I think we need a critical reassessment of Tomorrow Never Dies because this is believable as fuck, actually. <laughs> yeah, actually. Woof. Um, it is It is kind of close without people realizing how close it is. Yeah, exactly. I think because part of it was like, oh, this villain just is, why would somebody do this? Well, welcome to 2021, baby. <laughs> this is where we're at. <laughs> Um, there was really truly reassessed this movie. Yeah, I think I think this movie is due for a critical reappraisal. Honestly, I think this movie slapped. Uh, also, there are references to the relationship between Mur- Rupert Murdoch, uh, who was owner of the new international corporation, and and the new at the time British minister Tony Blair. Uh, Murdoch had famously supported the Conservative Party in in Britain forever, um, but he did back Blair in this particular election, which many people said contributed to Labour's success. Hmm. Um, So basically, Rupert Murdoch, media mogul, threw in his support for Tony Blair. Tony Blair won the election. And that shows you how big of an impact the media can have on, you know, the election of a prime minister or a president. Hmm. Um, And it's not just the media connections either. Uh, The smart weapons in Tomorrow Never Dies and they're tied to the media echo the Gulf War when Hmm. the new smart weapons were said to be more efficient and like less gruesome, I guess. I don't know. The implication was that it was better to shoot people with a with a drone or with a missile, like a targeted one, than to shoot them with a gun. Well, it's easier to show. Sure. It's easier to digest for people. Yeah. And it means that, like, I guess fewer soldiers are having to deal directly with killing people, which <laughs> is better. I No, there's like what? a lot of research done about how the fucked up shit people who are controlling those drones. Yeah. There's actually a really good anti-flag song about it, about the, the PTSD that people who um who are controlling those drones killing people and like yeah. the shit that they go through afterwards, which is interesting coming from an anti-flag song. It, yeah, it's very... um. That was the messaging at the time, and it was enhanced by the media because the Gulf War was heavily televised, much like the conflict that Carver is attempting to stoke in Tomorrow Never Dies. Um, this is a very, switching gears here, this is a very brief quote, um, kind of talking less about war and more about the media landscape of the 90s. Uh, Chapman writes, the early 1990s had seen a wave of rival action thrillers, which threatened to displace the Bond films from their position as the premier action movie series. Hmm. Uh, in fact, uh, Harrison Ford playing Jack Ryan in the 90s Jack Ryan films was actually described in promotional material as James Bond for the 90s. That was how they promoted him. Um, so much like Timothy Dalton's Bond struggled against the new glut of action movies that it would inevitably be compared to, Brosnan, Brosnan's Bond's films did as well. They were in competition with many of the same films. Um, so now there was competition in the action field to the point that promotional material for the Bond film started to emphasize that they were action adventure rather than just action, referring to the fact that they typically contain exotic locales. Because an action yeah. film will often take place in one setting. Um, whereas an action adventure film, the implication is that there will be travel hmm. um, and like seeing different places, which is not something that you typically expect of a straightforward action film. Hmm. Um, Martin Campbell, the director of GoldenEye and also the director of Casino Royale, which we will watch in for our next episode. Um, he also emphasized Bond's white collar hmm. status as opposed to many of the other action stars of the day who would be considered blue collar. Yeah. Here's your um, getting more relatable. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, Bond is still white collar. 
Yeah. So there's still this like aspirational class element to Bond that would not be for, you know, your Bruce Willis in Die Hard. Bruce Willis feels like a working class dude. Yeah. You know? Um, Just revenging his wife. Yeah. Relatable. Um, There was also some concern as to whether Bond could even still exist in a world that had more more or less embraced political correctness, which tells you a lot about the content of these films, right? Because people knew that they were racist and sexist and imperialist. Hmm. They knew. And that's why they were like, oh, maybe these aren't going to work anymore. <laughs> yeah. Um, this isn't a retroactive like application of a saying, you know, oh, well, that was just their time. No, they fucking knew. Yeah, they they knew. were worried that the films weren't going to work anymore because they had such <laughs> racist and sexist and imperialist connotations. How do we keep doing this? <laughs> How can we survive when we can't be racist, sexist and imperialist? I mean, anymore? people are still asking those questions. It's true. Um, the answer is you don't really have to stop because political correctness has not taken hold of the world. Yeah. Um. Another quote here from License to Throw by James Chapman, who writes, In making M a middle-aged career woman, the film drew obvious comparisons to the real-life appointment of mother of two Stella Remington as di- director general of MI5. However, the casting of a female M should, see- should be seen not merely as another example of the Bond series' topical contemporary references, but also as a deliberate strategy of the Bond character. In the most quoted line of the film, M makes it clear to Bond that she regards him as an anachronism, telling him to his face that he is a sexist, misogynist dinosaur, a a relic of the Cold War, whose boyish charms, though wasted on me, obviously appealed to that young woman I sent out to evaluate you. Thus, the film diffuses the obvious criticisms that could be made of the Bond character, that his attitude towards women is out of date in the 1990s, by voicing them itself through the agency of a female authority figure. It was interesting to me that M says Bond's charms are wasted on her because the first thing that I thought of was Pussy Galore saying that she's immune to Bond, Mm -hmm. which is because she is a lesbian. Not that that matters because they have sex anyway, because this is a Bond film. Um, I don't know if they mean it to imply that M is a lesbian. I don't think so. But the short hair, the more masculine dress, the resistant to Bond's charms in the early 90s are to some degree implying that she is somehow sexless. I so. But look at Moneypenny. Mm-hmm. She has the short hair. She's not necessarily like super hot mm-hmm. which i thought was really interesting i feel like m and money penny are like two different sides like m is obviously older mm-hmm. but i think there's this like m is because she's old she is sexless that's yeah yeah and i, I wouldn't be surprised if there was an intended implication that m is a lesbian just because like saying that she is immune or what is her wasted on her the charms are wasted on her um that tells us something about her authority within MI6. Hmm. The fact that she she is all of these things and she is, you know, in in a highly unflattering term I would not choose to use, but that I think is appropriate within the context of the film, that she is more mannish than any of the other women that we come upon and she is resistant to Bond's charms. That's kind of, she has to be those things if she is going to be the authority. Well, you can't have Bond having sex with M. I mean, you could. You can't. You could. I mean, you could. You you easily could. You easily but could. You but the movie doesn't. Let work. Billy Wilder direct a Bond film. I think he might be dead <laughs> For some now. Reason I thought you were going to say Billy Eilish. Yeah, let wouldn't Billie, that be wild? <laughs> let Billy Eilish direct a Bond film. 
Uh, more to the point, this line about the, the sexist, misogynist dinosaur um, tells us that the Bond filmmakers were aware of the problems with Bond's attitude to women, right? It tells us up front, yeah, we know. Do they do anything to fix it? Eh, you know. I wonder if this is some type of like trying to reach quote unquote feminist women mm-hmm. and like bring them in, but still have that charm of like, but he's Bond. Yeah. So you can feel good about finding him attractive. I think that there was definitely an attempt at pandering here. Yeah. Um, but I don't think it was done except exceptionally well. Uh, now tomorrow never dies. You can continue to pander to me and I will eat it with a spoon. Uh, <laughs> I, I think it's more that two they spoons. have two spoons. I think it's more that they've accepted that that specific part of the bond formula that he is charming and a womanizer. Um, it, I think they've accepted that that is sexist, which I think is maybe an improvement that they, that they, okay. Yeah. That's sexist. They're like shut, trying to shut a door. But yeah. They're leaving it slightly ajar. Um, but I think there's so much that would need to fundamentally change about these movies to drag the sexism out of them that that's not enough. Yeah, but it's really easy for people like yeah. casually watching this to be like, ah, oh, <laughs> feminist oh, wins. Whew, I can feel better about it. I can feel so much now. better about it. Yeah. I think this sort of coded suggestion that M may be a lesbian, whether intentional or not, suggests within the language of the film that she is more masculine and therefore fit to lead. Absolutely. In a way that because the language of these films at this point is not going to let Money Penny lead, right? Yeah. It's not going to let that girl from Goldeneye lead. Yeah. Well, Money Penny is still very much under his spell. Oh, absolutely. Um, so while, you know, these films might be aware of the attitudes toward women. I am not going to praise them as having finally embraced fun- no. feminism because they fucking haven't. No, I think it was definitely like, let's put this line in there. I think, yeah, I think it's kind of trying to make themselves feel better as much as, uh, trying to, it's, you know what it is? It's that scene from Avengers Endgame while all the female <laughs> heroes come out together. Look at, we've got them. It's the only we know. scene. We know. They're here. It's like, it's so frustrating too because like it can feel so, I remember watching it and being like, yeah. And then the movie ends and I'm like, whoa, no, that was it though, wasn't yeah. it? That was it. That was all they gave us, huh? Yeah. It's it's like in the moment, it's like, yeah. And then you think about it and you're like, oh. Uh. <laughs> um, let me tell you about some things, Mary. I don't think you know anything. Whoa. <laughs> Whoa. Wow. JK, truth, I actually think the opposite. The truth comes out. Um, I was going to invite you to come take a seat on the wench bench, but I'm not going to anymore. I'm going to wow. sit on the wench bench by myself. Wow. So I have to watch the wench bench from afar. You have to watch me sit on the wench bench having a great time. Wow. Listening to the podcast, The Wench Bench, which is a podcast where two friends, Allison, a frustrated feminist, and Fonda, a positive-seeking adult, discuss fabulous fictional females. Each episode, one of the hosts covers a different woman from all different kinds of media. Um, just a few of the characters that they've already covered are uh, Jane Foster's as Thor from the Marvel comics. Uh, they talk about overcoming expectations and review bombing, because uh, that's a thing. Uh, they talk about Furiosa and the wives from Mad Max Fury Ode. Fury Ode. What is that? Fury Ode. Fury Road. With a mention of the perils of toxic masculinity. Um, They talk about Kim Possible. The beginning of Allison's Queer Waking. I don't know shit about Kim Possible. I watched Kim Possible. Did you like it? (laughs) Yeah, I did. This fucking mole rat freaked me out, though. (laughs) That's fair. Uh, I've never watched it, but, you know, 
Uh, they also have an episode on Ellie Sl- Sattler from Jurassic Park and talking about the female gaze in relation to Jeff Goldblum in that movie. Huh. Um, very interesting. You have piqued my interest. And so many more. Uh, get ready for rants and tangents about problematic tropes, the evils of capitalism, and the importance of representation. Nestled Look, in. Hmm? You got me at evils of capitalism. <laughs> Nest- nestled in amongst fangirling, nerding out, and celebrating characters we love. 100% if you like our podcast, sounds like you'll like yeah, this. Yeah, sounds like you'll like this one. Uh, you can find The Wench Bench wherever podcasts can be found, as well as on Twitter and Instagram at WenchBenchPod. And if you sit yourself on a bench and consider yourself a wench, you've also done it. You've done it. You've won. <laughs> you've won feminism. Um, now Just I, like Bond. I, I'm, I'm receiving an, an incoming message from the beyond. Wow. That's weird. Are you, I, are you ready? I wish I, I wish I was the person who could do voices, but in fact, I'm a person who is embarrassed at the mere fact of my existence. Um, I think it's super embarrassing that I'm, that I'm alive. Uh, Cringe. Um, So just pretend I'm doing like a really cool voice here as, as I channel this message from the beyond. It was foretold that you would be here at this very moment, listening to this very ad copy. And even that you would consider skipping ahead a bit. Wait, wait. Stay with us for just a moment to tell of Poison of Prophecy, an actual play tabletop podcast using the Ryutama game system, a.k.a. what if Studio Ghibli made an Oregon Trail RPG? Poison of Prophecy is a story about divination. It's an exploration of what kind of world and people that power would shape. With Norse mythology... North? Norse? Norse. With Norse mythology as a baseline. We've taken inspiration from Fallout and added a bit of Terry Pratchett-style humor. Together, we explore a cold but gentle frozen land. Starring Barbara Perez Marquez as Yasena, a fortune teller, Jen Vaughn as Larkspur, a mail carrier, Paul Harpring as Clive, the mushroom farmer, and Matt Woodyard as the game master. Listen to Poison of Prophecy on the Crow's Codex podcast feed, our website, crowscodex.com, and Twitter at the Crowdex. Lastly, it has been predicted that you will leave a rating or a review of Fake Geek Girls after you finish listening to this episode. Who was that? Who who was that? Who is she? Who is she? What's her Insta? Her Insta is Fake Geek Girls cast. I'm pretty sure. Maybe it's just Fake Geek Girls. I don't know anything. I'm just search a, it. You find it. I'm just a humble a humble podcaster speaking from you're, beyond. You're just a humble podcast farmer. I'm just a humble podcast farmer harvesting my podcast crops. Each pod contains one cast. Yes. Um, Sometimes you get the pods with the NPR cast. Yes. We don't farm those here. No, we cannot farm them here. Um, formula. <laughs> Let's talk about the bug formula. <laughs> I think, and that's what you're here Do for. You? I Sometimes. I think that the Bond films of this period are still very much Bond films, but I also think that we have begun to stray from that Umberto Echo formula that I'm not going to reread. I think that you are correct, and I think that all the necessary changes to actually engage people are being made while still feeling very Bond, which is why I feel Bronson works so well, because I think they're doing exactly that. They're keeping that Bond, but they're pulling out the things that make it jarring for, like, this modern audience. that time modern audience yeah. while still bringing like still holding on and like bringing in new aspects so i would i would agree i think bronston bronston absolutely captures that yeah i think so too i think that there are a lot more surprises in in the brosnan era um even just in how the villain shows up you only sometimes know who the villain is from the beginning of the film this is true um uh, i think most notably in uh goldeneye you don't know. Yeah. And especially because and now this predates the whole Sean Bean dies in every movie thing. 
Um, but it is it is funny to watch retroactively because you're like, oh, Sean Bean dies. And then he comes back and you're like, oh, fuck. Oh, fuck. <laughs> what a twist. I was surprised when the lady was. Um, yeah. Was. In uh, The World Is Not Enough. Yeah. Yeah. I was surprised by that. Well, okay. I wasn't surprised by that one because I accidentally read a spoiler as I was researching. Um, but I was surprised when I read the spoiler. Mm. I was like, oh, I didn't see that coming. Um, I liked her, too. I did too. She was she was a good villain. We'll talk a little bit more. She's about what her I later. remember most from the movie. Like yeah, I, I, I was fair. like, did I read this or did I watch this? And then I remember remembered her, and I was like, oh yes, yes I did. Yes. Um. You so you only you know you only sometimes know who the villain is going to be from the beginning of the film, and the women also defy the formula as there are significantly less of Bond's less instances of Bond's magical penis. Yeah, it's true. And more women who don't really need to be ideologically repositioned. Instead. These women will manipulate him and prey upon his sexual appetite as a distraction. As they should. Yeah. Is that better? No. It's, it's just, just different. different. And I, you know what? I'll take it. At this point, I'm here. I just need something different. I'm it here. was refreshing. Like, as sad as this sounds, it was refreshing. Yeah. I was glad. I don't think we saw anybody converted by Bond's magical penis it in was, this era. It really, truly was. Like, these these women felt so much... Um. They didn't feel great, mm-hmm. except for Michelle Yeoh, but like yes. they didn't feel great, but I was so craving something different. I got to eat like um, a Boca burger. Yeah. I like Boca burgers, mm-hmm. but I don't know if I'm eating that good meal <laughs> when I have a Boca burger. Yeah. Um, this is a quote from The Politics of James Bond by Jeremy Black. Uh, Dr. No had called Bond a stupid policeman, and there had been other slights from subsequent villains, but the clash of values is pushed furthest in this film, referring to Goldeneye. Trevelyan, now the head of Janus, nine years later, asks, did you ever ask why? Why we toppled all those dictators? And Bond's reply that it was their job is mocked. Duty is derided. At the close, Trevelyan asks if all bo- Bond's vodka martinis had silenced the screams of those he had killed. So good. So clearly, by the this point in the series the creators are aware of the conversation surrounding bond including that he is a killer with no remorse right they, they, there's clearly some acknowledgement of that this isn't true of the books at least casino royale which is the one that i have read where bond does actually on occasion grapple with morality and where alcohol and sex are intentional means of both deadening himself to his horrible job and also affirming that he's alive the books are dark is what I'm saying. <laughs> they are not fun adventure stories, or at least Casino Royale isn't. And what I what I have read of the others, or what I know of the others, is that they are also like much more serious than the mm-hmm. movies. Well, I wouldn't say that the Bond era, the rather the Brosnan era, goes very far toward doing anything meaningful with this level of interrogation. Like it's not like, whoa, they've really flipped it on its head here um it is interesting to note the awareness of the problems with the bond formula um i think brosnan's bond is also a little a, like a very little less indulgent in vices uh, uh yeah i would i would agree i uh, would totally agree i don't even think just a little i think he totally is there's he seems more responsible in the very like he's not yeah but comparatively yeah like he's probably not always wasted yeah um, I would feel a lot safer getting into a yes. car with Brosnan's Bond, except at the beginning of Goldeneye. I can't remember. That's when he's driving really fast. Oh, yeah, to and freak out Money Penny. Yeah. It's not Money Penny. It's uh I don't think it's Money Penny. Isn't it Money Penny? It's some other young woman that has been I sent to assess him. Oh. I could be wrong and it is Money Penny, but I didn't think I it was. I thought Money it was Penny. because I was like, are they finally gonna get it get it on? <laughs> That's why I don't think it is her. 
because they do get it on. They fuck in that car. It's in Goldeneye, right? Yeah, it's in Goldeneye. Um, so I think he's a little a little less indulgent in vices, which I don't know. I think rather than seeing him stay away from vices, vices, I would rather see them for what they are, which is not cool, fun things for a cool, fun guy to do, uh, but rather a means of escaping his guilt about his role in the world. But we're not there yet. But there is a move in that direction, right? Like if he's if he's less indulgent in vices, then um, clearly we have some recognition of what those vices are and what they are doing for him. I just, you know, I would like to see it get a little more like, oh, they're vices. Like he is deadening himself. He's not just a cool and fun guy. No, you're right. It is not Money Penny. It's yeah. I think it's some other girl. <sighs> Poor Money Penny. She'll, money she, Penny. Money Penny wants to fuck so bad. She wants to, and I thought. I thought it was really interesting the changes they made to her looks, and I mm-hmm. don't know how I feel about it. Yeah. Um, this is a quote here from License to Thrill by James Chapman, who writes, And Glasnost, which is a more open government in the Soviet Union, largely under Mikhail Gorbachev, which Mary referenced earlier, uh, Glasnost re- extends only so far. When the Russians claimed the firing of Goldeneye was, quote, an accident during a routine training exercise, Bond detects a familiar cover-up quote, governments change, the lies stay the same. In a sense, it could be argued that Goldeneye does not really modify the ideological content of the Bond narrative to any great degree. It still belongs squarely in the generic lineage of the British spy thriller in which Russia had always been represented as a mysterious and sinister enemy, even before the rise of communism overlaid a more overt political dimension onto the genre. And I definitely agree with this. I think there are some novel changes to the formula overall, um, which were super refreshing and part of the reason that I liked this era. Mm -hmm. Um, But overall, there is nothing about Brosnan's Bond that is fundamentally different from what Bond has always been. Mm -hmm. Spy stories starring a white man who is basically always right and who secures England's status as a world power at the end of every film and gets the ladies and he gets the ladies um ladies (laughs) whatever changes are made to this formula such as playing with new kinds of villains etc they are not substantial enough to challenge the bond formula they are changes to it but they are still bond changes um they do keep things interesting but i would say that there is anything fundamentally different about this bond era than the previous ones they're still bond films like they feel like bond films to me um, another quote here from License to Thrill. Uh, Alexander Walker, who had liked Goldeneye, declared that, quote, the new Bond is in shambles, is a shambles, made in admitted taste and chaos. This is re- uh, this is referring to Tomorrow Never Dies, sorry. Made in admitted haste and chaos, the 18th in the series looks that way, too. For all its newfangled, computerized, multi-screen razzmatazz, Tomorrow Never Dies can't match the bold hokum of the cartoon-styled classic 007 adventures. I would say that the the... the ridiculous like technology is like that era's cartoonish though i think so too and it was interesting to me because i remember some of the criticism of moore's era being that these movies were too silly and gadget heavy (laughs) fuck that so that's not alexander walker's fault uh nor is it necessarily his criticism like it isn't necessarily that alexander watched the moore movies and was like these suck and then he watched the brosnan movies and he's like these suck because they're not like the old ones I have no idea how long Alexander Walker was watching these movies. Um, But I think that there's always going to be nostalgia for the past. And that happens with these movies, too. One thing represents the perfection of the formula, right? Like Connery's Bond is perfect until a new thing comes along and violates that formula. And then that violation becomes the new formula to look at fondly when something else changes. So, like, we hated we we being like critics not me specifically, hated the Moore films because they were too goofy in comparison to the to the Connery films. Until here along comes Dalton. Oh, these are too serious in comparison to the Bond films. And then we look at the Brosnan films. Ugh, these are too weird and serious and gadget heavy. Like, 
the point being that we're always going to look at the previous generation and be like, well, that was the correct way to do it. And this new way sucks. Look at Star Wars. Yeah, exactly. Perfect example. Um, one of the things I found really interesting was that in this this area of um, License to Thrill, Chapman refers to Tomorrow Never Dies as derivative. And that raised the question for me is, what is the line between derivative and refinement? Like, where do we draw the line between, oh, this film is derivative and, oh, this film is a refinement of the formula? Because personally, I thought Tomorrow Never Dies was great. Yeah, I totally agree. It felt like a refinement to me, not derivative. Yeah, I don't think it was right because it would have to be diff- more it would have to be vastly different right to be derivative no that would mean it it is too similar it is too similar and i think that there are elements that are very similar there there are echoes of um i think moonraker and mm-hmm. echoes of uh there's another major one that i can't think of off the top of my head um there are certainly echoes of bond films uh, i think it's somewhere in the middle yeah i found it ref- i found it to be more refined simply because first of all the plot I could follow. <laughs> this is true. I thought I followed that movie the whole way through. Um, I found it more refined because the playing with the formula I felt was inventive while still like being a Bond film. Um, the role of Michelle Yeoh's character, Wai Lin, felt more refined. I don't know if I would just use those words at all. Yeah. What words I would use, I don't know what. Because refined, I don't know if I'd use that word. Why? I don't know. When I say refined, I don't mean as in like, oh, it's so tasteful. I mean, ref- no. I mean refined as in like, we have honed the Bond formula and this is it in peak performance. I do not mean that it is tasteful. No, I know, I know. <laughs> I'm just trying to think if it was, if are there enough Bond films out at like of Bronson to actually say this is the peak? I mean, I mean, Tomorrow Never Dies specifically, not okay. all of the Bond films, because let me tell okay. you, Die Another Day fucking sucked. Okay. That was a bad movie. <laughs> I could see. I still, I'm, I'd have to think a lot more on this. I mean, for me, that is the refinement of the Bond formula. Like tomorrow, if every move, if every Bond film was like Tomorrow Never Dies, I would consider myself a Bond fan. <laughs> As it is, I like I like the James Bond movies generally speaking. I don't go around like being like, "Hello, my name is Melissa. I'm a I'm a James Bond fan." You're a Bondy. I'm a Bondy. I don't know why that. I'm a Bond girl. You're a Bond girl. Um but I to me, Tomorrow Never Dies felt like a honing of the formula. It was also one of the first Bond films in ages to be under 2 hours long. It was good. Um, it was a good choice. It had enough narrative twists and turns that I was on the hook through the whole thing. And I didn't find it derivative so much as it, it felt like it's taking what worked before, slimming it down and making it feel fresh. Yeah, and that is that is what refinement means. When to you me. say slimming it down and making it feel fresh, I can agree with the refinement. Yeah, that's that's what I mean. But it wasn't a perfect movie. Or anything, no, but. I know. But I'm just trying to think like, I guess I'm thinking in, in terms like, my terms like is that peak bond for me i don't know i really liked that movie but this is what peak performance looks like you might not like it as the meme goes <laughs> i just don't know i think a lot of stuff that i liked about that movie was not bond well that's that's part of what i mean right is they kind of did away with some of the dead weight of mm-hmm. the bond formula and brought in new things which i personally found to be way more intriguing which is mm-hmm. why it doesn't feel derivative to me yeah it felt fresh and refined in the sense of like here is a bond film 
it is clearly a Bond film. That is the mo- that is a Bond ass villain. Yeah. Um, the Bond girl is a lot better, and that is part of the refinement to me. Hmm. I can see that. Um, it is not it, clearly it didn't represent a direction because Die Another Day happened. So you know. Um, I wonder what the like the derivative like. What is the what is the argument there? Uh, there were elements of I can't remember. I didn't I didn't put them in the outline, but you there don't have to. There were elements of Moonraker, um, specifically the villain Moonraker Drax yeah, but in I don't think Carver. That makes it That's the thing is like what is what what makes something derivative versus what makes something especially a callback or a refined version of whatever came before. Moonraker was so bizarre. It truly was. So I don't know if that's like the best choice to make that like, oh, it's like this. Oh, maybe that's why it's good. Maybe that is derivative. Maybe because that's because that's so ridiculous. And I actually liked that movie. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It was a, it was an interesting argument that I came upon while reading that th- that Tomorrow Never Dies was derivative. And I was like, well, they're all derivative. But um, the o- excuse me, the only one that really you could say was not derivative was Dr. No, because that was the first one. <laughs> I think, though, this argument is exactly why this movie works, because it it absolutely captures both sides of this fan fandom, right? It captures mm-hmm. the people who really are like, yeah, no, I see Bond in it. And then it captures people like you and I who are like, oh, OK, I saw the things that you saw and um, we threw out the stuff that was dumb and now I like it. Yeah. So I think this argument is like, I think there's... I think depending on your how you felt about like Bond films and like how purist you are, I would be curious how how other people would feel. Yeah. What does Josh feel like? He liked Tomorrow Never Dies. Does he feel like it's a derivative or a refinement? Well, he said he said that before we watched it, Tomorrow Never Dies is criminally underrated. And then we watched mm-hmm. it and I was like, You're fucking right. It's true. You're it, fucking right. It is I it's the first Bond movie in which I don't think I picked up my phone more than once. <laughs> And I may have picked it up to look at the time. (laughs) I have a quote, last quote here in this section from License to Thrill, uh, where Chapman writes, Die Another Day uneasily straddles the gap between plausible political threat and the madman with death ray bent on world domination theme that the production discourse of the Brazen films insisted was no longer part of Bond's world. Um, personally, I think Die Another Day uneasily does a lot of things. It is kind of just an uneasy film. Uh, it's a very strangely placed movie. It feels to me like it belongs more to the Moore era than to Brosnan or Dalton's era by virtue of being absolutely fucking bonkers. Aside from the extremely serious opening, which was actually great. I thought the opening of the movie was excellent. I did too. Um, and it certainly does not transition well into the Craig era, which is very serious yeah. and grounded. It is so it is so strange to come at the end of the Brosnan era, which like is still very much blockbuster, goofy action films, um, but not not like that. <laughs> the Invisible Car was so much. I- it was so much. Um, truthfully, I have no idea what the fuck was going on with with Die Another Day. It feels dated in a way that the movies that came before it do not feel dated. Uh, and according to Chapman, the part when Bond looks at that jetpack from Thunderball and says, does this still work? Critics wondered if that was a commentary on the Bond formula. And the answer is not like this. It doesn't fucking work. <laughs> like, what the f- what the fuck were you doing? 
Um, there, it's felt like really they took all of the, the wrong lessons from like, for example, they took the wrong lessons from the success, uh, like from Wyland's characterization, tried to apply it to Jinx. And it's just like, eh, they took the wrong characterizations from the villainous women and tried to apply them to, I think, what's her name? Miranda Frost. And it's just like, eh, like you just, you did this, that, that is what is derivative, right? It's trying to recapture the same magic. Mm hmm. But poorly, you just did a bad job of what you were trying to do. Uh, just overwhelmingly, die another day was a a real stinker in this generation. But we'll talk about this later. That banging song, though. Um, are you ready to talk about masculinity? I've titled, I mean, yeah, I guess. I've, I've titled this section masculinity, but it really and it really always has been more about just gender relations in general. Um. But uh, we'll focus on masculinity at first. Um, so we're in the 90s now, as I've mentioned. So buckle up for some fucking wild, wild stuff. Uh, so I removed most of it from the outline. Uh, but rest assured that people were still being unspeakably nasty about Brosnan's body by the end of his tenure as Bond. As if he isn't an attractive guy even 20 years later. Yeah, what the heck? If you look at him today, like, yeah, he's 20 years older. But like he can get it. He's still a handsome dude. Maybe not with me, but he definitely can he, get it. Oh, he can, he can not with me, but he's getting it. Like for sure. <laughs> he's for sure getting it. He is for sure getting it. Just because a person is a man does not mean that horrible remarks about their body are okay. And many of those remarks were said in such a way as to devalue Brosnan's masculinity and fitness for the role. Um, ref- this, this is one thing I saw in particular is that there were photos of him, I think, before Die Another Day was released at a family barbecue where he was not absolutely shredded. Um, and therefore people were like, well, that's why he didn't get the role because those, those photos of him came out. As if somebody cannot get in shape. Yeah. And like, I saw this tweet going around, uh, like this week that was a, a gif of Hugh Jackman in the first X-Men movie where he is not absolutely shredded. He has, he has definitely has a fit body. He has a, a hot bod, if you will. Um, but he is not shredded like today's fucking Captain America Captain America and Thor and so on like he's he doesn't look like that um, can't see every single defined muscle yeah because that's fucking unhealthy it's gross you gotta you gotta hydrate but like part of like bodybuilding competitions and that kind of thing is is that you have to like oil and you know limit your water intake I don't know how it works but like that is not, not you don't just walk around looking like Chris Evans in Captain America. That's something that is like an unnatural state like of the he body. He probably doesn't walk around like him. No, like if that. you see him outside of the movie, he's not going to look like that. Um, he's still real hot though. It, yeah, it, Chris Evans personally does not do it for me. Oh, but I think that's I, okay. his personality does it for mm. me. So like he does it for me. I see. Yeah. Um. So the fact that Brosnan's body was not like absolutely shredded by you know, early 2000s standards was the reason he said like he was that, p- that people said he was let go of the films because he was like unceremoniously let go. He was supposed mm-hmm. to do another one. Um, and the way people talked about it was like, frankly, disgusting. It, it was similar to how people talked about Moore's body where like, yeah, Moore was getting older. People fucking get older. Like, sorry. But people don't feel this way about Craig, do they? No, at least not that I have heard. Um, no, him leaving has, it's like, I think feel like everybody loves him. I mean, Craig, uh, Daniel Craig is, is also a likable dude. I don't like his bond very much, but he, but I feel like Daniel Craig is likable. Hmm. Um, 
I think it, the thing that really got to me while I was reading this was the was the way that his fitness for the role was dependent on whether or not he had like any weight around his midsection as if you cannot be the proper man if you have that. And that's fucking disgusting. And wrong. Look at football players. Yeah. <laughs> I, Big and not defined all the time. And, yeah. You know. I mean, they're athletes. I like. I I understand that. Like we, when we talk about body issues, they apply differently and perhaps to a more extreme degree to women. Um, but that does not mean that there is not societal pressure on men to look a certain way, and that that doesn't have damaging impacts because it fucking does. Um, not and, just on the person. Yeah. It and it was it was just frankly disgusting to read the way that people wrote about Brosnan's body as if he isn't an attractive man. He's an attractive man today. Like like I said, he's getting it all the time. I'm sure. Not from me, but surely he's getting it all the time. I I mean, I guess maybe is it because these I'm gonna assume it's mostly from men who are saying this. Is it because they the he's no longer a body in which they want to attain. I think so. I think it was, it's like, that doesn't look, that doesn't look like the ideal masculinity to me. Therefore he can't be bond. Bond has to look a certain way. And it's like, well, does he like what, what does bonds body look like? Because in fact, his body has looked like a lot of different things in different eras. Mm -hmm. His body was, I think more compact and certainly very hairy in Connery's era. (laughs) Um, His, where's the hair? I mean, Brosnan was not unhairy, uh, but like he was the not hair factor. He was not as hairy as Connery. Lazenby, I think, a little more wiry. Um, definitely, he's straight up a model. Uh, more had, I mean, more was in the role for like a decade. He's just more. He's just more. There was a, there was a lot of more. Um, and Dalton, I think, is also a bit more wiry. And Brosnan, Brosnan just seems like a like a fit dude like yeah like, he just seems like man like when like Bro- if Brosnan is your next door neighbor and you're having a barbecue like Brosnan is gonna pick up two coolers at once yeah and bring them into the backyard and all the all the older ladies are gonna be like oh and all, all the men are gonna be like whatever themselves. yeah and I feel like that's exactly what happened yeah um so bef- before we get into like the end of Bond's tenure or Brosnan's tenure. Um, much of the early press for Brosnan and for the new Bond films focused on his looks and his appeal to women, as in that he would draw more women to the theater to watch the movies because of how handsome he is. I love this. Uh, Brosnan is not, in my opinion, the hottest Bond, but he feels like the most desirable Bond to me because I do not hate and want to punch him. I think that's part of the way, like, he's not ripped and maybe there's a reason. Yeah. Ladies love a not Ladies ripped guy. Look now, dad bod, never more popular. I mean, listen, now half of this is the characterization and we all fucking hate Chris Pratt now. But but, but back in the uh, back in the parks and recreation days, we're, like but after Andy stopped being a complete and utter disaster, but before the end of the show when he became like too perfect, um, that middle ground yeah. was definitely Chris Pratt's hottest time. It's true. It is true. When he was not shredded. And now look at him shredded and, and no one ass. likes him. Yeah. So moral of the story is don't get shredded don't or get so will your personality. It's true. Except except Chris uh Chris, Chris Evans. The other one. Chris um Thor. Chris Hemsworth. Thor. Hemsworth. Oh, he was just born that way, so it's like impossible yeah. for him to be anything else. It's true. 
Um, this is a quote from Paradoxal Masculinity, James Bond, Icon of Failure by Toby Miller, who writes, Brosnan's 007 and his quote, permanent come hither squint, unquote, <laughs> coincided with the emergence of the metrosexual, a term coined in the mid 1990s by queer critic Mark Simpson, who encountered, quote, the real future, unquote, and found, quote, it had moisturized, unquote. Love it. Historically, male desire for women has been over legitimized and female and male desire for men has been under legitimized. The advent of metrosexuality represented a major shift in power relations with men subjected to new forms of governance and commodification. Metrosexuals endorsed equal opportunity vanity through cosmetics, softness, softness, women, hair care products, wine bars, gyms, designer fashion, wealth, the culture industries, finance, cities, cosmetic surgery, and deodorants. Happy to be seen, happy to be the object of queer eroticism and committed to exfoliation and web surfing, these newly feminized males blurred the visual style of straight and gay and were supposed to be every fifth man in major U.S. cities. So, oh boy, it's time to talk about metrosexuality again. I'm so excited. Imagine, like, does metro, like, metrosexuality, that's not a, like, a thing that people say anymore is it i don't think so because i think it's become normalized okay if you were not around or old enough in this time period to understand what was going on in the 90s there was this short sort of shift in what acceptable masculinity could look like during the mid to late 90s um it was not the only form of masculinity but it was acceptable masculinity came to include Mm -hmm. these new things um so certain forms of personal grooming became acceptable for straight men, whereas before they would have been seen as effeminate or explicitly gay. Um, yeah, it was worse back then. Mm-hmm. You think you think people you think men aren't washing their asses these days? <laughs> like things used to be worse, you guys. Um, this goes along with the rise of the show Queer Eye for the Straight Guy, which was the precursor to Queer Eye, which is no longer focused just on teaching straight men personal grooming. It's very Like different. I said, it was fucking dire. It was um, a different time. So different place. Straight up, there was the show Queer Eye for the Straight Guy was essentially bringing metrosexuality, this idea of personal grooming and personal care, from the world of gay men to the world of straight men. And that was part of this um, this this uh new forms of acceptable masculinity came directly from gay men um now personal grooming can be part of even the most hyper masculine person's routine like it should be see the rise in expensive beard and mustache oils right mm-hmm. the number for some reason of targeted ads i get for man soap i don't it's like legitimately like man soap for men and I'm like, I, I don't know why you're targeting this to me. And also <laughs> well, opposed to what soap? Yeah. I mean, and like the the ads for uh, Old Spice and that kind of thing. Like those these ads are playing with with the idea of um, both of masculinity and desirability in personal grooming, which is not something that would have been super, um, super appealing in in previous generations imagine right? being a man and being like i need to soap <laughs> what? what um uh but this was st- this is i'm sorry we're being um we're being silly here i'm sure men were washing their asses in the 90s um, <laughs> i'm not sure but <laughs> it was rough time grunge was a thing but <laughs> grunge was more than just a style i guess but um described your asshole <laughs> but the <laughs> The uh, the rise in metrosexuality around this time um, allowed for different form. Like you could be masculine and look different than you than what masculinity would have looked like prior to this. Um, You're younger, you have eyeliner, tight pants. It's yeah, fine. you know, uh, Pierce Brosnan, who has seen. 
who has a very clean cut and less rugged look than Connery, like for certain, but also a sort of smooth, charismatic appeal. Um, he's not, he doesn't strike me as particularly aggressive, right? Whereas Connery, aggressive. Yeah, like uh, I feel like Brosnan takes you to a real, like they both take you to a really nice restaurant. Um, but Brosnan eases into the sex yeah. and Connery is like, sex now? Car? Do we have to go home? Exactly. Yeah. Um, so he, I think Brosnan, even though he isn't like the picture of metrosexuality or anything, he does fit this idea of mm-hmm. being clean cut, less aggressive, um, less threatened by femininity. Um, he feels urban and he feels modern, which is something that was seriously lacking from the Bond films before that. They always felt old. Like they yeah. felt like, and then, because they did belong to a different era, but mm-hmm. their, their bond also belonged to a different era. So with Brosnan, you have this new kind of acceptable form of masculinity that would previously have been seen as a fet, um, which was a word literally used to describe Dalton's bond. Hmm. Um, the Dalton's bo- the one they kept sending up women, right? No, that was Lazenby. Oh, Lazenby. God, I love that story because I, I, just, I just see him being like, yeah, that's right. Question my yeah, sexuality. Am I gay? I don't am know. I? You better send, send me another, another woman. Send two. <laughs> send two at once. Um, the Bond films are always kind of going to be chasing after the evolutions in society, right? Rather than anticipating new trends. But this does reflect a less aggressively masculine Bond. Um, note how he even occasionally lets women take control. Jinx love it. is on top when they have sex. And she doesn't die. Yeah, it's crazy. Also, her name is Jinx, which is amazing. I think that's the that's the first time that a woman has sex and is on top of Bond and does not die. Really? Yeah. Hmm. Big moves here. Wow. Um. So it really does feel like there was at least some effort into de-emphasizing Bond's masculinity as constructed through the passiveness of women. Um, feminism. Feminism. Feminism at work. Whether that is effective Thanks, or not. Thanks, Obama. We will we will get into later, but first, the moment you've been waiting for. I yeah. need to talk about the increasing amount of horny torture scenes as we get into Brosnan, Brosnan and Craig. I need- imagine me as we begin this this journey, saying at one point you will say this sentence. How would you? Have felt? Oh, I'm sorry. I thought I thought I thought there was another sentence. No, the sentence is I need to talk about horny torture. I knew about the horny. I knew the horny torture scenes were coming in Casino Royale. I did not know they how were, horny the the torture scenes would be in the Brosnan era. He he looks like as it was happening, like the the real down and dirty one. He like turns into like Harrison Ford. Yes. <laughs> Right? Like he doesn't That really, was a really loaded yes from me. He doesn't really look like he looks kind of like Harrison we Ford. We know who I am. He looks kind of like Harrison Ford. Yes. And that's it, guys. Anyway, if it, if it happened once, if there was one horny torture scene, I wouldn't bat an eye, right? Okay, sure. A horny torture scene. We every movie's got to have one occasionally. Um, but it doesn't happen once. And I have to be honest, the emphasis on harming Bond physically and the fact that there is a sexual component to the torture, not just in the movies where that appears here, but even as we get into Craig and him being tortured by men, seems in line with pushing at the boundaries of acceptable Bond masculinity. Right? More feminism. <laughs> feminism is torturing men. That's what they say. We're done here. We never yeah. need to make another podcast. Um, 
If Bond is our exemplary man, and our exemplary man can be hurt physically by both women and men, including when that torture has a sexual edge to it, as it does so clearly in The World Is Not Enough, and somewhat in Die Another Day, then that means that, like, masculinity is not as, it's not susceptible to pain. I would be, I don't know if I could even find this, but I would be so interested to see the trends in porn Mm -hmm. as Bond movies go on. I'd Mm -hmm. be so interested to see that information. It's true. Like how much BDSM is being looked up after Bond gets tortured by women and men. God, if I had that data, I would. Oh God, I would be be living. It would be so good. It would be so, if you know how to get it or you have it for some (laughs) reason, send it over. I will Venmo you $10. I'm Um, serious. I think, well, I think that 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 allows a little permissiveness toward, uh, like the, again, the fact that Jinx is on top and doesn't get murdered is allowing a little permissiveness in what is acceptable sexuality and acceptable masculinity i find like when i when i say i'm excited to talk about horny torture scenes i fucking mean it i think this is this is so interesting um it definitely feels very taboo in like the most sexual like sexual way where you're like i shouldn't find this like super hot i'm not surprised missy does because (laughs) i'm a fucking pervert (laughs) because y'all know (laughs) she loves a man covered in his own blood wow i've never been so thoroughly called out on this podcast (laughs) listen you're the one who put it out there you love a man covered in his own blood it's true i can't help myself um this is i'm moving on (laughs) license this is a quote from License to Thrill by James Chapman, who writes, but it's going to get worse, the things that I have to say. I'm so happy. Uh, Bond has damaged his shoulder at the beginning of the film and carries oh, the injury God. throughout, part of the attempt to characterize him as, quote, more of a flesh and blood man. The theme of female power and domination takes on a physical dimension in a highly charged scene toward the end of the film in which Bond is captured and tortured by Electra, who straddles and kisses him while he is strapped into an Ottoman torture chair. Electra is clearly gaining satisfaction from the situation as she turns the screw that will break Bond's neck and taunts him with her knowledge that he is aroused by... (laughs) I wrote arounds. It's supposed (laughs) to be aroused by the sensation, quote, you know what happens when a man is strangled. Uh, For those who don't know, you get an erection. Um, This is the first of three successive scripts by Purvis and Wade, including a torture sequence, a motif that was frequent enough in the books but had tended to be downplayed in the films until now. So this introduction... This is me again. Hello. Um, this introduction of torture scenes is another element from the books that has until this point not been emphasized in the film. We talked about this in the last episode with like some of the darker themes, um, the conflict between uh, Bond's role and his feelings about his role. I think uh, I think this is in part due to the connection between Bond's physical toughness and masculinity. We saw during Moore's era that aging resulted in people suggesting he wasn't fit for the role, which again happened with Brosnan. Um, if Bond can be hurt, especially for a long period of time, which is precisely what happened in the world is not enough and die another day he he has injuries in both in both films that last the whole film um his masculinity is called into question because men shouldn't feel pain according to like the traditional norms of masculinity right but what the world is not enough suggests is that pain even pain from a clear enemy can also be a sadistic source of pleasure right i think the framing here um specifically in the world is not enough is is meant to make us feel conflicted right it's it's meant to it's meant to make you a bit uncomfortable because obviously Electra is a is a gor- is gorgeous. Just yeah, she's just fucking funny. gorgeous. Um and the torture scene 
is pretty spicy. Like, it's a torture scene, but it's pretty spicy. It tr- it is. It's a spicy scene. It's a spice. Um, it's a. It's not vanilla. No, but it's also depraved because it is not consensual on Bond's part, right? It is. I, w- I would love to know the reaction of women versus men on this, mm-hmm. because like I feel like. I don't I don't even know. I can't make that judgment call because I, I think, know how I felt, but I can't say I can't speak for other women. I think positioning positioning myself um as best as you know a cis woman can in the position of cis man James Bond. Um I think probably the intent I think probably the intent there was to make you feel a little um a little turned on and also scared. And then to just kind of let you sit with what that what it means to feel both frightened and turned on, hmm. um, because Bond is in a bad position there. He is definitely in the weak place there. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, I mean, like she's she's like she's into it, and he's into it. Maybe he's into it. Too. I think he's totally if he wasn't into it. if he wasn't going to die, he might be into it. Um, I think he's saying saying to himself there are worse ways to die. Yeah. Um, so it's certainly not consensual on Bond's part here, but maybe it could be, which we're gonna put a pin in that until we get to Daniel Craig. We will return to the idea of consensual torture in the Daniel Craig era. Right now, I think what we have is some toying with the identity of pain and pleasure and masculinity and femininity, with the lines between them not as firmly drawn as they were in earlier films. A very different idea of what torture porn can mean. Truly. Um, Another quote here from License to Thrill, where Chapman writes, Nevertheless, the torture sequence is harrowing enough in what it depicts. This is now referring to the torture scene in Die Another Day. Um, Repeated beatings, immersion in freezing water, hot pokers, and a suitably Fleming... (laughs) Fleming-esque touch, being stung by scorpions and then injected with an anti-venom to suggest that Die Another Day is going to be a darker toned Bond than usual. Bond's chief tormentor is a silent female guard reminiscent of Fu Manchu's Cruel Daughter, a role played by Bond girl Sai Chin in the Fu Manchu films in the 1960s. Again, as in The World Is Not Enough, there is a suggestion of sadomasochism as the woman caresses Bond's face and pouts at him. I mean... The fact that the torture scene is spread out across the opening credits, known for containing sexual imagery, it's this so one good. still has girls just dancing and gyrating and on fire while a sexy Madonna song plays containing the lyrics, I shit you not, Sigmund Freud analyze this? That is telling me something about how I'm meant to read this torture scene. It's so good. It's so good. I, I like appreciated it so fucking much. I... What that just the rest of the movie sucks ass. The the credit opening credits scene to uh die another day deserves a fucking Emmy. I think well, I just think that the fact that it's in the beginning mm-hmm. is so deliberate and so easily like it just works really well. And if you're not paying enough attention, it just feels like whatever. But it definitely puts that it puts like in your head. Something totally different than like you're you're not just looking at sexy ladies doing acrobats and stuff. You're looking at sexy ladies like doing whatever while of an attractive man is tortured and you gotta be like, I'm horny, but for which one? <laughs> yeah, that's the thing is I think there's this very deliberate method of playing with sexual imagery and violence. Like, you know how um way back in uh 
Never Say Never Again, you had, oh, finally we're returning to the gratuitous sex and violence. Mm-hmm. Well, let me tell you all the sex and violence is right there in the Die Another Day opening credits. You got it all. What I think it's, could you want? It's definitely like it's still a horny opening. I mean, and just it's, look at him. Yeah. He looks hot. He does. He looks the best. He looks I'm in the sorry movie, we're so in my opinion. I'm sorry we're so depraved, but I know, like it just it's just walking the face did girls. They did this. Bitches. They did this by saying Sigmund Freud analyzed this. Yeah. That, that tells me everything I need to know. But even like the use of like Madonna, who's somebody mm-hmm. who clearly has used imagery. A taboo of, a taboo sex symbol. Yeah, of, of like and even used imagery of like dominating men. Mm-hmm. And it has it was seen that way. Like all this is so deliberate. And I I want to I want I would love to have sat in on the room where they made these decisions. Yeah, it feels very like when you watch it. I think that I think the intent is to make you uncomfortable a bit, like to feel a little bit like, oh, I shouldn't I shouldn't feel like this. Um, And I think that's so interesting and such like a bold thing for the Bond films to do. It's the best opening. Yeah, truly. It was so good. The only way it could get better is if he got out and then skied down a hill. Oh, yes. If only. Um, they should make Bond skis, like like Bond branded skis. Yeah, yes. Um, even beyond the horny torture scenes, you have some new relationship dynamics between Bond and the Bond girls. Most evident, in my opinion, in the wildly underappreciated Tomorrow Never Dies, which fucking slaps. Actually, it is so good. Um, that's it for the horny torture scene conversation. You can't add us. You, we're depraved assholes, I guess. And now, you know, now we live in it and we, you know, we accept it. We are wallowing in our own filth. But the only person who is surprised is no one. Yeah. We're, we're right there with Madonna. Yeah. Um, this is a quote from License to Thrill, a cultural history of the James Bond films by James, Chap- James Chapman, who writes, Tomorrow Never Dies also features the most progressive heroine of the series to date. The character of Y. Lin performs the same ideological role as Anya Amasova of The Spy Who Loved Me in that she represents the feminine face of communism. However, as played by Michelle Yeoh, the foremost female star of Hong Kong action cinema, Y. Lin actually has less in common with previous Bond girls than she does with another tradition of popular cinema, The Fighting Woman, which crossed over into mainstream Hollywood movies during the 1980s and 1990s, the two foremost examples being Sigourney Weaver in the Alien films and Linda Hamilton in Terminator 2, women who adopt masculine characteristics their assertiveness, physical courage, and ability to handle big guns. So I do want to note here that as much as I fucking loved Michelle Yeoh in this movie and her character, um, Michelle Yeoh at this time was already an established action star, something that did not apply to any other Bond girl actor. Um, It's another example of women of color working twice as hard for half the appreciation because not only was this movie like not only was she did she have to be an established star before she got this role, but this movie was also criminally underappreciated. Um. But I will say that Y. Lin as a character holds up against Bond in a much more interesting way than any other Bond girl thus far. Absolutely. She even got that high tech shit. Yeah. She has a mission entirely unrelated to Bond. Even though they 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 do work together, she is on her own mission. And she's better at yeah, it all it's true. than him. Uh, she existed before Bond and will exist after him in terms of the story. Uh, her star, her story itself is still lackluster, um, but Michelle Yeoh brought a lot of life to the character, who was, in my opinion, written better than most of the Bond girls because she was written to be a fighting woman archetype rather than a Bond girl archetype. Um, and also, the way that the film treats their relationship is itself very different from the way it treats other relationships, which we can exemplify through... Either you can think of it as two scenes or one continuous scene, um, but the motorcycle chase and the subsequent shower scene. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so shower scene so good. I'm sorry. This is the horniest episode ever. I mean, it's not. It isn't. I don't know. We've had some horny. What conversation. is the horn? What is the horniest fake girl? Fake geek girl. I'm episode? positive there is another one, uh, but I don't know what it is. Okay. Um, this is a quote from Market Forces. It's probably Jurassic Park. <laughs> James Bond, Women of Color, and the Eastern Bazaar, which is by Lori Palmer, who writes, The unity of vision and motion exemplified in this chase sequence through the market spaces of Saigon culminates in a scene that functions to shift control from Bond to the woman of color with whom he is paired, disrupting the typical conventions of the franchise. Still handcuffed together, Bond and Lynn rinse off the grime at an open shower located in a local bathhouse. Mothers bathe their their children nearby as Bond and Lynn engage in the kind of flirtatious interaction that would normally propel 007 and his Bond girl to the nearest bed. However, the optics are telling. It is Bond who is topless while Lynn remains fully clothed. As he runs a bar of soap through her hair, she covertly uses her metal earring to unlock the cuffs before slipping them onto a water pipe behind Bond, declaring, I work alone, and walking away from him. Left standing there with his lean, muscular torso streaming with water, Pierce Brosnan is already the erotic object of the camera's gaze, subverting Laura Mulvey's notion that cinematic apparatus is gendered male by its active controlling gaze of the passive on-screen female. Brosnan further inverts Bond's typical subject position by shaking his head and sending bright droplets of water fleeing from his dark hair into the deliberate, advert-sensuous backlighting. That's right, (laughs) I say. Let Bond be the pretty boy handcuffed to a pole because he got too caught up in a woman. I would like to point out that in in that um, two sentences are six exclamation points in in our outline. That's right. And I, and I stand by it. I, I, I agree. Um, this framing of Bond as this pretty boy handcuffed to a pole establishes a more interesting relationship between Wylan and Bond um, than to have them, or rather, it, it establishes them as sort of sexy rivals, which puts Wylan on more equal footing. She should have been the one torturing him. <laughs> She comes back and die another day to torture Just him. Tortures the shit out of um, him. This is the sexiest movie, Bond movie, not because of the shower scene, but because of the motorcycle scene. Do not at me. Oh, unless a, you agree, in which case you may at me. So I was watching this with my husband and I was like, I'm excited for the motorcycle cycle scene because Missy really liked it. <laughs> my husband goes, Missy doesn't like car chases. What could it be? <laughs> and I was like, I don't know. It must be really good though. What could it be? And then we watched it and I was like, He's like, my husband didn't get it. And I was like, what? what? Are you, what? He's like, <laughs> he's like, it was good. I was like, no, it was spectacular. It was good is what it was. This is not Bond's, this, the shower scene is not Bond's first shirtless scene. Uh, nor is it his first sexy outfit. Again, shout out to Connery's Terry Cloth Romper. Absolutely. I love short shorts. He love that. Short shorts. Love that. Um, but the way the camera treats Brosnan in the shower scene is the way that the camera tri- typically treats the Bond girl, right? Mm-hmm. It lingers over him. It frames him as an object of desire, both for Wai Lin and for the audience. And it puts Wai Lin in the position of control. At first, we do see her um, in, you know, she's wearing a white T-shirt. She's wet, blah, blah, blah. But then we cut to close-ups of her face as she's pulling off a sharp earring. We cut to her picking the lock and then we cut to bond just backlit like a fucking romance hero covered in water it's so good it's great uh and it it doesn't do this and this is the most notable part it does not do this to make wylin a villain or to make the viewer horrified at the affront to bond's masculinity he immediately gets out of it right he just breaks the pipe and he looks exasperated rather than emasculated it's there to make us horny 
Yes, that is the function of that scene is to be is to be horny, not to be like, oh, look how scary it is that she bested him. Instead, he's like, oh, they wanted to pull the women me. in and they wanted to give them what they wanted. They didn't mm-hmm. want them to pull them in and be like, what the fuck is this? I think that like I think that that is probably it's again, it's not feminist, but it is it is the thing that is more, I think, effective mm-hmm. than even the you're a sexist dinosaur. Speech. I, I totally agree. I totally agree. Because it, it treats Bond the way that it treats other characters. And it's the first moment in where you actually feel like, oh, I understand why exactly. everybody wants you so bad. If the movie's supposed to be indulgent. It's not supposed to like stoke your feminist ideals. So that's why it works. Because you're like, oh, like, okay, I'm not, he- I'm here to find out how sexy this is. <laughs> Turns out. It's very sexy. Look to my husband who's like, why am I attracted to this? <laughs> um, this is a quote here from the Chinese exotic modern modern dias- diasporic femininity by Olivia Koo, who writes, Michelle Yeoh is ambiguous as a new Bond girl. She fights with Bond and against him, but is also rescued by him before finally succumbing to him. At the end of the Saigon warehouse scene, there is a pointed shot reverse shot sequence of close ups between Bond and Wyland's faces, characteristic of the romantic look in Hollywood cinema within the signifying economy of classical editing. Uh, sorry, classical editing techniques. Prior to this, Wylin and Bond's gazes hardly ever meet. On the motorcycle through the streets of Saigon, they literally avoid each other's gazes. Because they are handcuffed together, Wylin rides backwards on the motorcycle looking out for enemies. If, as Laura Mulvey argues, the looks of the spectators onto the screen are subjugated to the inter- intradiegetic looks within the film, it would appear as though there are few opportunities offered to spectators for either identification with or mastery over Wylin. They are not able to get close enough as she is made further ungraspable by her role as a spy within the films who switches between positions and roles. So, Ku argues here that even the way the camera treats Wai Lin differs from how the Bond girls usually treat it, not just in the shower scene. Um, usually the gaze in cinema tends to give the viewer mastery over or identification with a character, particularly with female characters. So when we're talking about previous Bond films, right, you'll have, um, you often have Bond as a voyeur. Like he will see the Bond girl before she sees him. Uh, he's usually given the opportunity to ogle her a bit. Um, and we never really see things from the perspective of the Bond girl. But here we do. And we don't really get the Bond girl, the typical Bond girl voyeurism over Wai Lin that we would expect. Um, this idea of giving the the viewer mastery or identification um, is never entirely true with Wai Lin. Uh, you can compare, for example, the scene of Honey Rider or Jinx emerging from the ocean in their bathing suits versus Wylan showering in a wet t-shirt with Bond. Technically, the same thing is happening, right? You have hot, wet girls, okay? That's technically what's happening in both in all three scenes. All three of those scenes are sexy, right? Whether or not they're personally appealing to you is, of course, you know, varies person to person. But all three scenes are, are meant to be sexy. But the way the f- camera treats bo- both Bond and Wai Lin is interesting. You're not entirely occupying the, sp- the space of either character. But you would expect to be observing Wai Lin and being Bond. But in fact, you're not really doing either. Um, and it's not like you're not observing Wai Lin, right? Like I said, wet white t-shirt, like they were going for it. Um, but the camera is equally interested in framing Bond's body the way that you would expect Wai Lin's to be filmed. Most of the shots of Wai Lin or of her body are further back. Yeah. The close-ups are, are of her face or her hands, whereas the scenes of Bond's body are like, you know, drifting over his wet torso. It's so interesting. It, it genuinely is. Um, 
And throughout the film, Ku argues, you are never really able to get a grip on how you're meant to be positioned against Wai Lin. Like, are you supposed to be to be her or are you supposed to observe her? And if, you know, if you are supposed to be her, what does that say about the expected male audience? It just kind of it suggests that the audience does not have as firm a grasp over what's going on in Tomorrow Never Dies as they do in pretty much any other Bond film. Mm-hmm. And that is how the movie treats her character outside of the camera, too. Bond never really masters her the way that he does other women, right? Mm-hmm. Even though they eventually hook up in the end, she is not ideologically positioned, repositioned. He is still the symbol of Western decadence. They just happens to have sex at the end. Yeah, It's, it's less an, a tool of ideological power. And just two people fuck. Ha ha, wink, wink. Um... And more just two people who are rivals on the same side, just fucking, which I'm here for it. Two reluctant enemy friends of a of an enemy. It's a good, it's a good dynamic. Yeah. Also, it's the mom from Crazy Rich Asians. It's true. Um, but it's crazy. I was like, this is her life before. <laughs> but lest we get too excited. Uh, <laughs> a quote here from License to Throw by James Chapman. Heroin Natalia Simonova, uh, played by Squirrel. Skorupko, uh, is a computer programmer who possesses certain skills that Bond does not, though her independence is expressed mainly through bossiness rather than intelligence. And villainous Xenia Onatop, played by Famke Jansen, uh, who gets her kicks from asphyxiating men between her legs during Love sex, it. as her name implies, she likes to go on top, Love it. is simply the latest in a long tradition of beautiful but deadly females such as Fiona Volpe and Fatima Blush who live fast, she drives a Ferrari, and die spectacularly. But I'm sorry, I just cannot not love Xenia on its <laughs> It's so it's so good. It's just so good. I, I love I love the Bond franchise's sexually aggressive weirdos. It's great. I love it. Uh, Natalia was comparatively boring to Xenia on the top. If if your if your protagonist is not trying to crush a man between her thighs, I am not interested. <laughs> Unless you're Michelle Yeoh. Unless you're Michelle Yeoh. Michelle Yeoh could crush a man That's, between her thighs. This is true. Um, everyone would accept it. <laughs> but like the thing is that neither uh, Natalia nor Xenia Onatop are particularly new for the Bond franchise. The only the only real difference here is that Natalia is capable enough at what she does without Bond, but she really doesn't feel like a character outside of him. She feels like a necessity to the plot. Um, Xenia is buck wild and far more interesting because she actually does seem to have motivations. They're just fucking weird. <laughs> She's doing her own thing and that thing is crushing men. I love it. Um, another quote here from uh, License to Throw by James Chapman who writes, Goldeneye's strategy for incorporating feminist discourses is not to alter Bond's attitude towards women but rather to alter the attitudes of the women around him to Bond himself. Indeed, the film presents Bond as being beleaguered by women in positions of power and authority. And this is really the crux of the issue for me here. I don't give a fuck how fictional women feel about a fictional man, right? I don't fucking care if ever if every woman Bond encounters in his fictional world likes him. I don't That'd care. Be boring. Uh, Goldeneye is still not treating female characters as anything more than accessories to Bond. They may be more interesting accessories, right? But I don't really feel that Natalia has any motivation outside of what is happening on the screen. I don't feel that she's a character outside of that. Mm-hmm. Um, Honestly, you could you could at least you could say the same thing about James Bond, right? That he doesn't have motivation outside of what is literally happening on the screen. But at least Bond is the protagonist. <laughs> right? That's the big difference here is that Bond is the fucking protagonist. That's what makes Casino Royale so good. 
<laughs> There's so many of them. I just can't get over his daughter. His daughter yeah. is the best bond. The issue, the lines about his flirtation with money, pay, money, penny, for example, the lines about his flirtation with money, penny being construed as sexual harassment are what really cements this to me, right? Because the film is aware that the behavior is inappropriate. But instead of addressing the inappropriate behavior, money, penny basically says through virtue of her actions, <laughs> but I like it. Yeah. That is not how this works, right? Um, or as Rebecca Luce Kapler, uh, Sergei mm-hmm. Oshikine, and uh, Jean-Claude Couture put in, in an essay called The Tie That Binds, or sorry, The Tie That Bonds, even though Bond claims that he has no problem with female authority, it is clear that he has no problem because the female has no real authority. Nobody in this movie really has authority over Bond. Um, in The Politics of James Bond by Jeremy Black, he writes, the, po- the plot of GoldenEye demonstrates the validity of Bond's viewpoint expressed earlier in the story when he told the new female M that the Secret Service required agents as well as statistical analysis. M might regard Bond as a relic of the Cold War, a sexist dinosaur, but he is vindicated throughout the film. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of things I disagree with Jeremy Black on um, throughout this book and in other things. That is he's- this the person who said that animatronic women are not? No, oh, that was okay. a different person. Okay. Um I, so I disagree with Jeremy Black a lot, uh, but he is spot on here, uh, even if we likely disagree about whether this helps or hurts the films. <laughs> because while the Brazen era makes a lot of gestures towards feminism, or at least some sort of improvement for its female characters, those gestures are empty. Um, even Wai Lin ceases to matter the movement the moment the movie is over, and her motivations don't really matter except when her when they align with Bond, right? So while the films might acknowledge that Bond's poor attitude towards women is sexist and needs to die out, he is consistently proven right. Like over and over and over again, he is correct. He may fail a little bit more in in this generation than previous ones, but having sexy women kick ass, including kicking his ass, isn't enough to erase the ideological and political roles that women play in this franchise, which which is as assistance to Bond and not as characters in their own right. Again, that said, I think Brosnan was my favorite Bond. I agree. Um, because I am a human being, I can like something and also be extremely cognizant of its flaws. I'm just an easy mark, you guys. It's true. I'm just an easy mark. And then you put blood on him and it's his own blood. What can I say? I can't say anything to defend myself because you Very are hitting important. me with truths. Yeah. I've admitted to these things before and now I am. my chickens have come home to roost and you know that I am depraved. Yep. Do you have anything else to say about masculinity? No. Before our final very important question? No. Okay. I think the only thing that I still just don't know is the treatment of Money Penny in this in these movies. Yeah. I think it's just, just the way that she looks because she's not conventionally attractive. She's definitely not ugly, obviously. But she's not like hot Money Penny. Yeah. I don't think she really was in the originals too. Like they well, let her the age. Daughter was. They let her age quite a bit. I was impressed actually That's with true. how much they let that her age. That is true. Um but she always kind of seemed like, oh, Bond. I think we should, we will definitely talk about Money Penny in the next. Yeah. Uh, because they, we get a new Money Penny and she is an agent now. Yeah. Well, it just kind of feels like in the past, Money Penny has been like, oh, Bond, you're so silly with your, with your trying to kiss me. This right. Is, this Money Penny feels like, oh, Bond, take me now. Yeah. <laughs> um. So now we come to the most important part of the episode which is where we pick the best theme song yes so i'm i'm gonna play them for you don't discuss them while they're playing okay i'm ready so first up we have goldeneye by tina turner yeah it definitely feels like a very classic it does but i think i think so goldeneye is by tina turner 
And I think that it really does an excellent job of straddling the line between like the classic themes by Shirley Bassey Mm -hmm. with a more modern feeling. It's also extremely sexy. Yeah. That song fucks. Yeah, it's true. Um, Next, we have Tomorrow Never Dies by Sheryl Crow. Mm -hmm. I think it's a solid theme. Yeah. But it doesn't blow me out of the water. It's very much like Sheryl Crow's popular right now, right? Like, let's use it. Yeah. I I don't hate it or anything. I just don't think it's like, it's not blowing me out. It's not memorable. Yeah. Uh, next we have "The World Is Not Enough" by Garbage. I think it's a I think it's a good song. I think it's fine. I just definitely feel like it's almost it. It's not updated enough. It does feel very very classic Bond. Yeah, not in a bad way. But it's garbage. Like it shouldn't. I yeah. I would like a little more garbage. Um, a little more oomph to it, you know. But it's it's. I like the song. It's fine. And finally, we have the highly contentious "Die Another Day" by Madonna. I like I can't that's my favorite like I would put that on a playlist to listen to I'm gonna be a fence-sitting asshole here and I have two answers no my favorite song out of these is Die Another Day by Madonna yeah the best Bond theme out of these is Goldeneye I would agree with that but the Die Another Day it's just it's just a banger it is a fucking banger and that opening kicks ass it's so good what other one is saying Sigmund Freud analyze this it's just I like I literally am like I should put this on my playlist I hope I hope you guys came here for the most unpopular opinion which is that that song kicks ass I can't believe people don't think that it's so good like I have to say it doesn't sound like a Bond theme at all sure but it's Um, good but it's good and that's important. But, like, it reminds me of the 80s ones that were, like, very 80s. Yeah. And, like, those didn't necessarily feel very Bond. So I think the, I read an entire essay and I didn't use it for this because it was primarily about the music video for Die Another Day. But, like, I read an entire essay about how neatly the imagery of the music video and the lyrics tie into one of Freud's books. Interesting. Um, It's fucking smart. Like, if nothing else, that's a smart-ass Bond song, especially when you consider the legacy of Bond as being very hyper-masculine and reliant on um, ideas of oppositional gender. You know what I mean? Um, I think the song is great. I think that I think that opening credits has to be my favorite. Like, yeah. is, it the, is it the coolest looking? No. No, the one with the cats is the coolest looking. But the, ju- <laughs> the juxtaposition of the sexy imagery with the torture imagery and the it's line, Sigmund so Freud, analyze this, is probably the the greatest art piece of art i've ever seen in my it's entire better life. than the rest of the movie <laughs> oh my god the rest of the movie sucks ass but uh i have to say song i'm most likely to listen to out of this die another day hands down absolutely love that song. no question uh i think best best bond theme probably goldeneye it's also very good yeah it's good but i don't know i just can't that I madonna just... song is so fucking good like i'm just still jamming to it um, do you have anything else to say, Mary? No, that Madonna song slaps. It slaps. Um, so that's going to do it for this episode. You can find us online at fakeeatgirlscast.com, which has links to all of our previous episodes, including all these Bond episodes. We're almost done with Bond. We've got one more generation. It's true. Five more movies. Um, if you like this, consider visiting our Patreon. Uh, there's a link to that on the website as well, or patreon.com slash fakeeatgirls. If you toss us a dollar or two dollars or a hundred dollars per episode, you get cool rewards. Um, like access to our unedited, unedited episodes, access to our outlines. Um, so you can see what we're talking about in advance. Or if you just want to see how heavily scripted this podcast is, you can do that. <laughs> um, next time, we're going to be talking about the Almighty Johnsons, a, uh, I would say, aggressively mediocre um, New Zealand television show. 
Uh, and then we will be talking about the Daniel Craig bonds and then we will be free of bond forever. Until another one comes out. Until my husband commissions us to do whoever plays Bond after. I'm really excited actually to see who plays Bond. Yeah, It's kind because of fun to have an investment. I feel like they're going to choose someone interesting. Yeah. The big push is for Idris Elba, which I understand. Man, I was watching The Wire. Idris Elba is scary in it. Yeah. Um. So yeah, that's it. I think Meryl Streep should play it. That'd be sick. That'd be awesome. All right. Catch on the flip side. Yeah.